Right. Well, here it is. This is Michael Vandervoort, and it is January 5th, 2024, and we are recording the first uh, show from Drive3HR uh, International Headquarters, and I'm here today with my co-host for Labor Relatedly, uh, John Hyman. John, Happy New Year. Welcome to the, back to the show. How you doing? I'm doing good. Happy New Year and happy 2024. We made it to another year. We did, uh, you know, and it, you know, I was, I was listening actually to some old drive-through episodes over the holiday break because, you know, who, who, who doesn't have a better way to spend their time than that? And I was actually your, listening to. That's how you spend your free time is listening to old episodes of yourself. I, I was, I was listening, I was driving, so it was, it was kind of like uh, I had to fill a gap somewhere. Anyway, I, I did, I listened to an episode that a, a few of us did in 2020 about the pandemic. And it's funny, it was just like, so it was supposed to be an upbeat relief sort of end of the year kind of show. And it was like 43 minutes of, oh my God, 2020 has sucked and two yeah. minutes of, but it's going to be better in 2021. And yeah, it, it, 2020 it wasn't so much better, but um, uh, aside from a, a looming presidential election, uh, I'm optimistic about 2024. So we've decided, at least in my house, after a pretty spectacularly crappy 2023, that we're only having positive thoughts for 2024. So <laughs> onward and upward, here we go. <laughs> there, there's a, there's an Excelsior or whatever in there somewhere. <laughs> so all right, well. All that, all that aside, because we will we'll maybe at, at the end of the show, we'll talk a little bit about where we're headed in 2024. But um, there's been a bunch of stuff happened since the last time we did a show. And frankly, I didn't even look back to see when the last show we did what happened. But it was it's been a few weeks. And as usual, even with the holiday break, there's still been a bunch of kind of unfolding stories in the world of labor relations. And so we wanted to touch on uh, two or three of those today, I guess. And, and so... Um, Let's start with our old standby and just get it out of the way. So Starbucks, which we seem to talk about on every show because they've had a two-year running saga of union organizing and fighting with the Starbucks Workers United or Starbucks Workers United and, and SEIU. Um, they they made a few moves at the end of last year that were kind of interesting, kind of seemingly maybe taking a more uh, conciliatory note in some ways, but then continuing to fight in others. So. Um, I guess to uh, just to sum up real quick, they they did a couple of things. One is they their chief people officer reached out in a letter to Starbucks Workers United asking to re-engage negotiations and you know to start working together to kind of get into into good faith bargaining for 2024, which was uh, surprising to me in some ways. So that was one thing. Second thing they did was they issued a report that had been commissioned, I guess, by their board of directors to kind of look at the whole organizing thing and all of Starbucks labor policies. And they sort of came out and said, Starbucks didn't have a anti-union playbook and we're, you know, we support the right to organize and follow the rules, but we, could do some things better. So they were, it was a little bit of a wishy-washy report. And then the third thing is their CEO announced a whole bunch of initiatives to repair relationships with partners. So there's kind of a lot going on there. And then they continue to met, you know, deal with court, court litigation and all that kind of stuff. So where, what's your take? Where, where's Starbucks at, you know, in 2023 headed into 2024? Are we going to see a change in this campaign or is it just going to keep thrashing on? I, I, you know, it, it's really interesting messaging because, 
you know, when when we when we've spoken about this, I forget how many episodes ago it was, but we had both laid odds the number of union contracts that Starbucks would reach with their union um, was exactly zero. And uh, I might be changing my opinion as I go into 2024. I don't know. Um, you know, they are they're at least outwardly committed to not being in an impasse anymore with the union. They're outwardly committed to sitting down at the bargaining table. And, you know, the 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 bona fides will bear out how, you know, genuine that sentiment actually is. But I mean, they've they've taken up they they've taken a PR beating as a company because of their, you know, because of their staunch anti-union position. And I know people that won't you know, they don't shop at Starbucks anymore. They go get their coffee elsewhere because of, um, for two reasons. One, because of their anti-union position, and two, because um, they still have stores open in Israel, which is an entirely separate issue. But um, but they, they've taken a PR beating over the last, you know, year or so, give or take. And you wonder what that, you know, as their board looks at it and their shareholders look at it, you know what does that look like on their you know on their PL statement on their annual report and maybe they've decided they need a you know a softer approach to try and turn things around for them as a business and so they're going to at least outwardly say we're going to we're going to sit down and bargain and an impasse is not acceptable and and it's not helpful for anybody to be at odds with our employees um uh the latter of which is true um but we'll have to see if it actually results in a contract actually being reached in any store yeah, I mean, they have like, I forget what the number is, it's single digits in, in Canada. They have like a couple of contracts maybe in Canada, and that's really all they've ever had in North America. I'm not familiar with what goes on in Europe, because those are different laws and different environments to operate in for unions. Um, there was another interesting, I guess, just a subset, we didn't actually have this on the agenda, but the board issued a ruling, I think it was a ruling that said that they want them to reopen 23 stores that they closed allegedly for union animus. Yeah, and this is something the board always, you know, salivates over, but it's really tough to get a compel any business to reopen stores. So that's probably going to continue in the litigation, I guess. But you want to talk about that for a minute? Yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's uh, very difficult to force them to do that. But, you know, the, the other side of the bargaining impasse is being bad for, being bad publicity for Starbucks is, you know, that the seemingly daily reports of Starbucks loses another case, finding that they retaliated, discriminated, whatever, against employees uh, is not great for Starbucks either. And so I think it all plays into their decision to take a to take a decidedly softer tone with the, you know, with the union going into 2024. And then there, there's also uh, there's an initiative by a, a shareholder group, a minority shareholder group, to to nominate and place three pro union board members on the board. I mean, there's a there as always, there's a lot going on at Starbucks. And I, and the other thing that we didn't mention is, and I forget the exact number, but because of the Hamas boycott and some of these other issues, the valuation of the stock took like a twelve billion dollar hit. And, yeah, um, I, I I didn't see the exact number, but yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Um, and it's hard. I mean, how, I don't know how you differentiate or how you kind of parse out what's union related and what's you know Palestine, Israel, Hamas related. I don't know how you say you know six million or six billion is here. And so I, I don't right. know if you can, but clearly there is 
particularly in the the younger generation, which is a large component, not just of Starbucks employees, but their but their customers as well. That kind of you know Gen Z, um, uh, they're just they're they're boycotting. They're not they're not spending their money at Starbucks yeah. right now. So yeah, Starbucks. And, and, sorry, go ahead. No, no, good. I was going to say that, and the whole point of these types of corporate campaigns is to to do just that, right? To to bring pain to the to bring bring bleh, bring pain and financial loss to the brand in an effort to leverage them to you know make a deal with the union or whatever other organization may be leveraging the boycott. So this is uh, you know this is kind of classic economics and classic labor struggle here. Things that are playing out where maybe Starbucks is starting to reach their level of pain tolerance over how long they can fight this battle with Starbucks Workers United. So we'll see. Oh, $12 billion is a pretty high level of pain tolerance. So it, yeah. And, and even if it's not a financial loss, the, the, you know, it's, I mean, like, like they didn't lose $12 billion as an organization in terms of their bottom line, but the valuation to their shareholders is, is a huge loss. And they're going to, they feel the pain of that because their fiduciary responsibilities to, to deliver Anyway, so interesting, uh, might see a shift going into 2024 there. Um, <clears throat> another big story uh, that broke here just a few days ago has been actually pending for a while with the board, but SpaceX and, and the NLRB came out with a, a finding against SpaceX uh, saying, I guess, basically that they had uh, committed retaliation and, and uh, improper terminations against eight employees who had engaged in what the board deemed protected concerted activity by writing a letter to Elon Musk, filing a number of complaints about the working environment and so on and so forth. And uh, and uh, SpaceX responded in a pretty unique way uh, to the to the board's findings. So you want to you want to kind of tee us up for that one, because this is uh, yeah. this is so the, the this is the opposite of pain tolerance. Yeah. So the 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 NLR. So the NLRB issued a complaint against SpaceX. So it'll, it'll now go to a into an to an ALJ and then to the board and then to the Fifth Circuit. And uh, who knows where after that. But saying that the the letter that eight employees Eight SpaceX employees wrote and disseminated about Elon, um, uh, and then were terminated as as the board argues as a result of writing that letter critical of of their CEO um, was in violation of their right to engage in protected concerted activity under Section Seven. Um, we'll we'll have to wait and see, but at least the the board feels there's enough there to go forward on a complaint and take it to hearing, and then in response. Um, SpaceX filed a lawsuit in, I believe it's in the Southern District of Texas, uh, federal court, basically, uh, to oversimplify, basically alleging that the entire National Labor, the, the, the entire National Labor Relations Board is an unconstitutional exercise of executive power, um, that the boards, that how the board wields its power um, goes beyond the scope of what an administrative agency is supposed to do under the separation of powers uh, 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 provisions of the Constitution. Um, and they are making an effort to have the entire NLRB declared as unconstitutional. So that is, um, that's, you know, responding to a, you know, a shotgun blast with a nuclear, with, with a nuclear missile, basically. <laughs> but uh, but it certainly got everyone's attention. Yeah. And, and this is, I mean, this is not, 
I mean, Tesla quite often, you know, the, any of the, the Musk owned corporations, he's, he's known as being not a, not a supporter of unions in general. Uh, I would guess it just, you know, from his public statements and that kind of thing, but you know, the, he, and he certainly has the money to spend to litigate, I guess. So it's a, it's to your point, nuclear scorched earth, whatever you want to call he's, it. He's not, he's not, he is not one to not a let you know what he thinks and b flex his muscles uh, yeah. when he wants them when he wants them flex and he doesn't mind paying people to do it. So yeah, and look, I mean, you could look at the lawsuit and say, well, this is ridiculous. Um, this is just a, a ridiculous over you know overreach by a pissed off litigant, but hey, he filed it in federal court in Texas. He's going to likely get, have a favorable ear from the Southern District of Texas. If he wins there, it'll go to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is um, no fan of the NLRB or administrative agencies at all. And he will get a favorable Ear in the most conservative of our, of our federal circuit courts, and from there it'll go to the U.S. Supreme Court that is has expressed, um, you know, very skeptical views about the current, you know, our current agency state and the the way that federal agencies wield administrative powers, and this court as it's currently comprised, um, I think one of its one of its core missions is to rework agency power in the executive branch and he's going to get a favorable favorable ear there too so it is not out of the realm of reasonableness or possibility to presume to to conclude that what you know when you read the headlines and you're like oh this is a fool's errand it might not be and this might actually be a winning strategy yeah it'll be another it'll be another interesting case to watch and it's actually um they Tesla um, also had a case where there was a like a T-shirt union logo issue and the board ruled in favor of the of the union and they the uh, Tesla took them to court and just recently won a reversal on that as well. So like this isn't necessarily a strategy that is, you know, like like you said, it looks unusual, but it's something that that kind of is kind of consistent with the organizations run by Elon. So, it you know, it's it, it's not and he doesn't lose everything. So it, it, it'll be interesting to see how it all bears out in the end. Kind of kind of weird to try to imagine like a universe where the board was suddenly put out of existence by the Supreme Court and to to imagine what what labor law would look like then. But I look, I mean, we, we might have a Supreme Court decide a presidential election in the coming months. So, yeah. you, know, it's, you know, it's um, we we live in strange. We live in strange times. What can I say? Yeah. Yeah. Um, just one last thing is curious. So like this is so these kind of cases like I was I was thinking of while you were talking, I was thinking about going back to the Giannis decision, which is a completely different. It's not an organization. It's more of a, you know, like paying dues and stuff. But there's there are a number of these kind of cases about, you know, the dues requirements and this sort of thing that this is a theory that is kind of working its way through the system that a lot of these agency powers are not legit, right? And and so conservative organizations are trying to kind of move these cases through the court and change the change the power levels of the organizations. There, do you see any other any other developments there, or is that I'm maybe linking two things that aren't 
directly correlated. No, you're, you're not. I mean, we saw it with some, you know, some EPA powers recently with the with the at the Supreme Court. There, there's a case challenging the, and I forget the name of the agency, but it's the Consumer Protection, whatever the yeah, federal agency yeah. is. That's pending with the Supreme Court. Um, um, SpaceX filed a similar lawsuit last year challenging the administrative authority of the Department of Justice um, to pursue an administrative case against SpaceX, um, attempting to block it from hiring um uh, uh uh asylum seekers and and refugees from foreign countries and and um SpaceX prevailed at least at the district court um in that case and I think it's the same court where this um where the NLRB uh injunction case is now pending so yeah. you know the, the arguments have been floating around for the last couple of years and it is it is there is you know a definite belief on you know in certain political spectrums that our administrative state has just is just gone too far and things that the NLRB is doing things that other agencies are doing are things that should be legislated by elected members of congress and not regulated by unelected administrative officials so uh well you know this is a this is a wait and see but there is a definite direction in our in our courts um, in to to rein in administrative powers, which is why the the SpaceX's lawsuit against the NLRB is not is not a ridiculous one. Yeah, for sure. Um, it'd be interesting. It, um, so we'll wrap. Well, I guess we'll wrap up with the the Musk segment with that and go to. Um, it, it kind of it's a really it's a really interesting. Um, I guess just corporate communications piece that that came out um, from a company that uh, a lot of people use, um, Costco. The the CEOs there's a there's a pair of CEOs or an outgoing and incoming. See, I don't really understand the arrangement. It's a, it's a CEO. It's a it's a chief executive officer and a president. So two different. Is that what it is? Okay. Yeah, so they have like a dual executives, right? Yeah, they have like a dual headed structure to the organization. Um, anyway, doesn't really matter directly other than it was written on behalf of both the gentlemen. Um, so there was a, a, a Costco warehouse, I guess, in Northern Virginia somewhere. I don't know exactly where that recently. Norfolk. Norfolk? Yeah. Um, yeah, it recently unionized. And and Costco has had unions for many years. Um, they, they represent about 5% of their total employee population. So it's a very small uh, segment of the overall, you know, workforce for Costco, but they, but it's spread across the country. They they have some organized warehouses or stores on the East Coast and the West Coast, and they've had, they've had kind of separate regional agreements. Last year, they negotiated for the first time with the Teamsters a national master agreement that covers all these stores. Um, and but but this this store in 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 Virginia is the first store to organize a union inside Costco in like more than a decade. So even though they've been unionized I, for I think, a long I, time. I think, I, I think two decades. I think it's 20 two years. Decades. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know the exact duration of time. I didn't really like deeply research this story, but it's it's been a, a while, right? And so so even though they're used to dealing with unions, um, they haven't had organizing, uh, surprisingly, to be honest, they haven't had organizing um you know, for a long time. And, and, and I guess that speaks to their culture and the way they treat their people and 
uh, you know, their Costco is known as an employer that has it pays higher than average wages. Um, you know, provides great benefits, et cetera. It's, it's everything I've ever heard from my my time in the retail industry. Um, they 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 were always recognized as a good employer. Um, they don't network a lot in the industry. We we always kind of saw them as an outlier because they kind of kept to themselves. Uh, so it's interesting to kind of get this public display. But what they what they put out was a memo that went to every store that basically said, "Hey, we uh, we had a union." Uh, formed in 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 uh virginia and we want to let everybody know about it and it wasn't a you know this is a bad thing memo it was more of a like it's not it's not you it's us this was a fall down on our in our leadership this this shouldn't have had to happen we dropped the ball i'm not really quoting the letter but that was sort of the messaging yeah they said we're just we're disappointed in the result, but not in our employees, but in us as leaders. It's an amazing, it, it's a masterclass in employee communications. Um, yeah. And whatever, whether the the CEO and president are just PR wizards, or they they have a, I would assume Costco has an, an A plus PR firm, you know, on retainer that they use, or. You know, and or they worked with some great lawyers that gave them really solid advice on how to respond here. It is just a just a fantastic response in um, uh, in response to what happened at that one at, at that one location. Yeah, I I, I totally agree. I was uh, uh, our friend, mutual friend, Suzanne Lucas uh, asked me for a quote that was featured in an Inc. article uh, yesterday and. I, I thought it was like it it did everything, you know, when you're in a union campaign, it whether you win or lose, right? You know, at some point you have to like you have to kind of start the healing process, right? And some companies choose to do that by fighting, like we talked, you know, they did uh, SpaceX, they're, they're gonna fight, right? They're gonna continue the continue the the fight and and resist. Um here, cost not to say it's better. It's a different approach, fits their culture. But my my take was they they took they they took responsibility by saying, you know, we you know this happened. It was our fault. Here's what happened. Here's what we think. You know, we we lost we we, we lost communication, et cetera. And and then they but they explained it within their values and and in their culture, right? So they like they they owned it. And, and it, you know, and they shared it with everybody. They didn't just post it in, in Virginia, they shared it with the whole company. And, you know, it, it, it has, it has value on both sides, right? It's, it tells people, Hey, we, we made a mistake. We're going to fix it. You know, you don't, so it kind of sends out that subtle message of, you don't, y'all, the rest of you don't need to be thinking about unions because we understand we screwed up and we're going to make it better. Um, But at the same time, it's, you know, it it's a it's a conciliatory message to the to the Teamsters and the new the new um, the newly organized employees at the location that lets them start the healing process of, you know, I guess I, I would assume since they have agreements elsewhere, I would assume they'll wind up with a contract at some point. Right. Um, unlike some of these other companies like Starbucks and others that we've talked about that won't give the contracts. But I I agree with you. I thought it was a great uh, masterclass and it, it was put out very publicly. I did, uh, I did see some, um, I would say union side 
you know, Reddit and Twitter and some of those, you know, some of those spaces where they took issue with the fact that the the CEOs said, you know, we don't, we don't like the the result kind of, you know, they were like, oh, they're upset at the union thing. But it, I mean, it was, they couldn't have done it any better, in my opinion. I, I don't think so. You can, my, I, I posted on this on Wednesday and that post on LinkedIn has now gone like completely viral. It's gotten... Mm-hmm viewed close to three million times at this point with with that thousands of you know thumbs ups and you know almost a thousand comments and and there are a lot of people that have a lot of very people with very strong pro-union feelings that take issue with the letter um i think they're i I don't agree with them but you know their you know their their take is um you know if you're anti-union you that you can't be anti-union and pro-employee. And so if you're anti-union, you're necessarily taking a position antithetical to the employees. And I disagree with that 100%. I think the best way to remain non-union is to be pro-employee. And we've talked about this at length before here on the podcast. Um, um, and, you know, and the other the other main criticism is, look, this, this is just lip service. They, they're trying to stop a fire from spreading like it did at Starbucks and another, you know, and other retailers. And this is just lip service. And, you know, we'll have to either they're not going to do anything genuine or, or we'll really have to wait and see whether, you know, the bona fides of what they do in response, um, you know, matches up with what they say about their, you know, pro-employee stance in the letter. But, I mean, everything I know about Costco as an employer is that they are pretty, they treat their employees pretty darn well. They pay them well. They have good benefits. Um, and they're generally considered a pretty good place to work and that might be underselling it so i i I presume from everything i know about the company that what happened here is a store related issue not a corporate related issue there was something wrong in that store whether you know a a management failure in that particular store that i'm assuming when you know the the letter mentions you know that we're disappointed in ourselves as managers they're subtly pointing the finger i I read that maybe as to the managers in that particular store and maybe that problem has now been resolved (laughs) right um and um and uh i I don't doubt for a second that costco is going to do what is what they feel is right by their employees to treat not necessarily to remain anti-union or not to remain non-union, but just because they feel that's the right way to to treat their workers. So, right, right. I would agree, and 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 I'm sure you know this as well as I do. In I've worked for a number of companies that were highly regarded as you know great employers or whatever great reputations, generally speaking. And in every one of those companies, at some point, we developed a hotspot where it it turned into a, a disgruntled you know minority spot inside the company, whether that be a retail store or manufacturing warehouse or whatever, because there was typically, to your point, a broken relationship between the site management, somebody that went rogue or, you know, and and so even the best organizations are going to have like outbreaks of, of, you know, malfunction within the organization, somebody that's not acting consistently with the culture and whatever, and complaints and this kind of stuff are are typically the early warning signs. And what these guys are saying is somehow we missed that. We're sorry, you know, we'll make it better. So that, that again, 
masterclass stuff on that. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, if you haven't seen the letter, if you're listening, if you haven't seen it, just, just Google Costco union response or something like that. And you'll find it. I'll, I'll also include it in the, as a link in the show notes when we post the show, but it, it was a, it was a very uh, concise, awesome piece of communication in my estimation. So well done to Costco. Uh, last couple things real quick. So there some of this one last, this one last topic, a lot of it has, has been out for a while. And that is the, uh, the Jennifer Abruzzo memo around election procedures for the NLRB and some of the changes that she put into the, so the rules, the new election rules, which are really the old quickie election rules from a few years back have been reinstated by the national labor relations board, um, went into effect uh, on, the, on the day after Christmas. So while we were all, you know, enjoying eggnog and, and unwrapping presents and stuff, Boxing Day, um, the the rules around the the way the NLRB will conduct union elections going forth were changed. And I don't know if we need to go into all the details of it, but it, but it, it essentially shortened up everything. The board says they did it to make election process more fair and speedy and so on and so forth. But the end result of it, a lot of the changes by cutting out time and and various uh, detail appeal details is it creates a sh overall shorter election cycle, um, which right now average somewhere around 340 days. And it brings them, you know, bring it down more into the 20s if they accomplish what they want to do. And the, the data overall shows that if unions get shorter elections, they win more. So it's essentially a way to help unions win more elections, of which they're winning just under 80 percent right now anyway. So whether it's if you just think about it logically, I mean, if the, the unions are talking to employees long before the employer finds out that the union is talking to employees, so the union has a run up of months, uh, you know, to deliver their message to employees. The petition is, you know, the petition is served and now the employer has you know, 21 days, 23 days to get their message across when the union's already been in the employees' ears for months. So it's it's just logic says um, it, it, the, sh the the less time employers have to deliver their message, the more the more union friendly that's going to be in the election process. So yeah, and 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 with you know when you couple it up with Semex, right, which we talked about at length before in previous shows. The union, you know, the, the onus or the burden now of, of moving for election is on the employer with an RM petition. So, you know, this this sort of, you know, it's two trains coming together and kind of merging into one. And it's really going to drive, I think, coming into 2024, a much higher uh, amount of, well, it was high this year, but I think we're going to see increased union activity and probably um, in terms of filing for for elections and or recognition and so on and so forth. So 2024 is going to be a very active year and all the changes the board made with those two decisions or two different one was a one was a decision and one was a, a policy change rulemaking. It, it really shortens the time that that employers have to respond and you're going to need to be on your A game if you get a if you get an election demand or a recognition demand in 2024. Yeah, call your call your employment lawyer, call your labor lawyer, and call your 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 persuader like immediately. <laughs> yeah, I would call them <laughs> now, even if you don't have uh, any kind of union activity. I would start Agreed. building. I mean, you I, know, that's. I would start building a plan if you don't have a pretty good, comfortable relationship in place on both fronts, because you're probably going to need both uh, given the short cycles. So read a hundred percent. Yep. So call John, call me. We're we're uh, or there are many other options out there, but we can help. This isn't really a, other options. There's yeah, no, there's yeah, no, yeah. there's no other options. 
nobody better, but no. <laughs> anyway, um, and so so to get, I know you got a, I know you got a hard deadline. We got about twenty minutes, but I'm not going to go that long. So, um, to wrap up the show, I guess, um, and I, I don't even know what I'm going to say here. Um, uh, well, I'm is, excited now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 well, I have like one thing in the back of my mind, but so like, you know, a prognostication, right? Going into the going into this year. Um, no, I didn't want to do like resolutions and I didn't want to do like 2023, what's your top three stories or anything. Maybe we'll do that later. But so what do you, what do you see right now um, that, you know, it's kind of top of mind for you, John, headed into 2024 from a labor relations perspective? What, what's the one or two things that you're, you think people need to be thinking about or looking at? I mean, for? I, I think, I think that the continued increase of, of union activity, I think remains top of mind, um, top of mind for me. I think um, continuing to watch as the current the, the current iteration of the NLRB continues to flex what I, what I would call flexing its muscles on issues that traditionally have not been NLRB related issues like non compete agreements. I think that's going to and 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 I'd say non competes because there are also other. I mean, states are looking at non-competes. The Federal Trade Commission is looking at non-competes. There's congressional federal legislation that's looking at non-competes. So it is non-competes are being attacked from multiple avenues. But the fact that an issue like a non-compete agreement, which has traditionally not been an issue that's been on the NLRB's radar under the umbrella of Section 7 rights, to me, is a fascinating issue that I think is has the potential to break huge in, in 2024. Yeah, I, I think so. So first of all, I, I've seen conflicting opinions. This is kind of a 2023 holdover is so one there's there have been conflicting predictions about like, was 2023 really as impactful from a union organizing perspective as it seems with the volume of noise that the story's made? And that that's often translated down to one metric, which is union density. Right. And in the private sector, that's been about six point one percent. 10% or so overall with government employees included. Is it going to go, is it going to go up, go down or hold steady? And I've seen a few predictions from the union side where they're saying they think it'll actually go up, not, you know, not to 8% or whatever, but it'll be the first statistically significant kind of change um, in the year. So that, that I don't know the answer there, but it, it'll be interesting to see if those, those people who are making that bold prediction are correct. Um, so that's one thing I'm going to be keeping an eye on just from an interest point of view. But one one thing we've talked about this a lot is the the ability inability to gain a collective bargaining agreement. Right. That that's the kind of the last stop, you know, that that you can organize, you can win elections, you can hold those Starbucks, you know, get 300, 400 stores organized. But if you can't get a collective bargaining agreement, you know, have you won anything at all other than talking points, you know? And I wonder, like, I don't know what this would look like, but I have one thought. I'm curious what you think. That seems like the big nut that the board or somebody has to crack, because there's not going to be legislation to change it. So how does how does the labor side prevail over that final hill or whatever you want to call it? And I think one thing that the board might try to stretch is bargaining in bad faith remedies. Um, so do you have, do you have any, uh, do you have any thoughts there? Uh, yet like, like, impo like imposing contracts, 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't see where they yeah. have the statutory authority to do it, but I don't put doesn't it mean, beyond doesn't them. doesn't mean they doesn't mean they won't try, right? Right, or, right, or inju right injunctions, right, exercising their their injunctive power to order employers to sit at the table until the contract is reached. Um, yeah, certainly, I think that is. Um, there's a great. I'll, I'll send you the links. So you can put it in the show notes. There's a great. There's a great article I read in the New Republic. Um, uh, not a conservative publication by any stretch of the imagination. They definitely come at it from a viewpoint, um, which is, uh, you, you know, uh, in the headline reads, How Corporations Crush New Unions, um, mm -hmm. written by Stephen Greenhouse, uh, uh, old New York Times, you know, labor reporter and friend of labor unions. Um, but it's all talking about, um, you know, crushing unions through just not bargaining to a first contract um, and how, you know, employers effectively use that as a strategy to 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 break the union and that the, the real bet that the battle you know that organizing gets all the headlines but that's not the battle the real battle is that first contract that employers know that and they use that to their they use that to their advantage um so yeah but i think um I, you know i think you're right and i think watching how the board exercises their injunctive authority to kind of get employees, organized employees over that hump to that first contract is going to be a very interesting issue to watch. It would be a very logical extension of the uh, Semex, you know, the, that we're going to order you to bargain in the absence of a, a of an elect, right? It's, it's, a, it's almost like a train track extension of, you know, we got to get to the end game of how do we, how do we mandate bargaining and how do we mandate first contracts, right? You know, and all right, cool. Well, we shall see. Stay tuned for 2024. Uh, we'll be doing some additional shows uh, throughout the year. We did about a dozen last year and probably about the same level this year. So it's great to get back in the saddle with you, John. And as we said at the beginning, Happy New Year. And I'll talk to you again down the road pretty soon. Always good to see you. Happy New Likewise. Year. Take care. Cheers.